Welcome, everyone. If you didn't hear me, you know who I am. So, ladies and gentlemen, back in now May, when Simon and I started talking about this evening, and we discussed the idea of who we should have with Simon to present it, and there was one name that came immediately to mind, and that was Richard Williams. And I'm delighted to say that Richard and Simon are here this evening. Now, for a moment, just indulge me. For me, music has been a massive influence on my life over the years. And throughout that time, unbeknown to Richard, he's been the barometer of my interest in music. Um, I told him that on the way in, and he said, I hope I haven't corrupted you. Um, I'm sure Simon will talk a lot more about his journalism, but you may not know that Richard was the very first presenter of the old grey whistle test. Um, regular contributor to New Musical Express and Melody Maker, and that's where I first started to, to read and listen to what he had to say. Um, and then he went on to join Chris Blackwell's Island Records um, as an A&R manager, uh, looking after one Bob Marley. So, kind of a good start. But maybe music can wait for another evening. I think we need to get him back. But tonight, Richard and Simon are going to talk about, in my mind, the best Formula One driver ever, Ayrton Senna. So please give a very warm welcome to Richard Williams and Simon Taylor. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Trust that, unlike Steve, I am mic'd up. Am I mic'd Yes, yes, I think I am. Um, Steve has already uh, done a little bit of uh, in introduction about the career um, on my right. Um, and we're here to talk about motor racing and to talk about Ayrton Senna. But the thing that is really unusual about Richard Williams in the journalistic world is that he is a polymath. Most people in Formula One, and I worked as a journalist in Formula One for a very long time, most of them aren't able to talk about anything except Formula One. Richard has written, I think he said, about every single sport except horse racing. Um, you've done six Olympics and five World Cups. Uh, he has won glittering awards for his sports writing. Um, he's been, uh, he's written for The Guardian, for The Independent on Sunday, for lots of the great newspapers. Um, and Steve alluded to his musical career. He was actually editor of Melody Maker. He was indeed an A&R man at, at Island Records. Um, he is still very involved in the music world, has run three Berlin jazz festivals, so he's not just a motor racing bore. Um, he's, he's very much more than that. Ayrton Senna, for anybody who works in Formula One as a journalist, or indeed as anything else, uh, if you were in the paddock in Ayrton Senna's day, you knew that he dominated the place. And for those of us who were at Imola when he had that fatal accident, it was a cataclysmic happening. Um, Richard wrote a book about 10 years later, I think, called The Death of Ayrton Senna. 
And it does start incredibly movingly with a chapter describing the funeral uh, in Brazil when Senna had died because he was in his home country almost a messiah. But then the book actually talks about the life of Ayrton Senna before ending up again with the death. And one of the reasons why it's a great book, we were hoping to get some copies here for you to buy, but because uh, it is still available in paperback. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, but there is the That's paperback. Like. <laughs> so get on to Amazon, it's only a tenner, <clears throat> and um, it's, it's the most wonderful read. But what's great about it is that it is not a hagiography. It's not a book that simply says how wonderful Ayrton Senna was. What you get out of it is Senna, warts and all. Now, Richard, working in the paddock as a journalist uh, during that period with Senna, to a certain extent in those days, it was much easier, wasn't it, to get to know the drivers than you can today. You could actually have honest conversations with them, and you presumably did that with Senna. Yes, it was a very different... Good evening, I should say, and thank you very much for uh, having me. Simon and the Society, and um, I'm looking forward to talking about this. Um, it was a very different era for all the people who wrote about all sports. There were, even in the early 90s, there weren't really any media minders. Um, there were press officers who arranged things for you, but they didn't get in the way. Nowadays, sport, and Formula One is no exception, has taken after Hollywood to some extent in putting up barriers between journalists and the athletes or whatever they are, footballers, racing drivers. And you can understand that to some extent. Um, it's not always been a happy relationship. But it, it makes it harder for someone who really wants to try and get under the skin of a sports person um, to do so because you're kept at a much greater distance nowadays. Back in Senna's day um, and before then it was very much easier to buttonhole somebody and say can we have a chat. I, I didn't do all the Grand Prix, unlike somebody like Nigel Roebuck or Dennis Jenkinson who were very well known to all the drivers of their eras. Um, I wasn't as embedded as, as they were, but even so, I could get to know people a little bit, um, and sometimes enough for them to open up a, a bit. I never had an in-depth conversation with Senna. I watched him mostly from a distance from press conferences and huddles. Um, but I, like, like everybody, probably like everybody here, I was always intrigued by him because he was different and I felt I wanted to know more about him. My heroes in motor racing terms were Sterling Moss and Jim Clark successively from when I was a small boy and a slightly bigger boy. Um, I never thought of Senna in quite that way. I always had quite an objective view of him. What I thought was that he had a sublime talent, no question of that, um, up there with the very greatest of every era. Um, and that he was an unusually interesting man, that there seemed to be layers to his personality 
um, that other drivers, maybe they had, but they didn't show that they had. Um, he had a kind of philosophical side to him and a spiritual side, um, which is not what you get from your average Grand Prix driver. So I was always drawn to wanting to know more about him. And then when he died in such an awful way, um, I wanted to write more about him. And what I, what I wanted to do was try and work out what he meant as an individual and in terms of the sport, why people felt so strongly about him, pro and anti. And there had been times when I haven't cared very much for what he'd done on the track. And I wanted to take a very objective view of that, if I could. In your book, you list his qualities. Um, well, you said there were four primary qualities which really occurred to you. His technique, of course, he was supremely uh, good in the cockpit. Uh, his intelligence, the fact that he was calculating all the time, not just before the race, but during it. Um, but there's also this thing of his kind of use of psychology as a weapon. Um, the fact that he would, he so believed in his own superiority that he would inflict that on other drivers, even if they were, like Alain Prost, his teammate. Yep. Um, Martin Brundle said quite early on, uh, from his experience of their, the season when they fought for the Formula 3 championship, he said, you know, Senna had this bright yellow helmet, you saw it coming up behind you, you saw him getting close, he left it up to you whether you wanted to have an accident with him or not. <laughs> and you, you based that decision on whether you wanted to finish the race or not, basically. Um, and that was the kind of psychological hold that he had on people. And people in other sports do similar things. They impose themselves psychologically like? on their right. Oh, golly. I was hoping you weren't going to say that. Um, let me think. Let me All think right. Well, we'll come, we can come back um, to that. But yeah, it's not, it's not uncomfortable. Because, I mean, in other sports, there's no danger, I don't think, of killing either yourself or, or, or the other man. I mean, the fact that Senna was able to be that aggressive when danger was there makes it a little bit different. Yes, and that's one of the big questions about Senna's career, is that he changed Formula One um, in a very important way, from a, a non-contact sport to a sport in which contact was not exactly accepted, but it became part of the game. Mm. And it wasn't just a kind of playful thing. You might remember the very famous lap that um, uh, Gilles Villeneuve and René Arnoux had at Dijon, I think it was, yes, wasn't it? When yes. they went round side by side, banging wheels, um, trying to get the better of each other. And it was jolly, actually. That was quite jolly. It wasn't a kind of serious you know, duel to the death, as it were. Senna did something a bit different. Um, in his numerous um, altercations with fellow drivers, there was a strong hint of danger there and a hint that, as I said with 
with the quote from Brundle, you know, the other per it was up to the other person to decide whether they wanted to ratchet up that danger that he had imposed, that sense of danger he had imposed on them. But not even, um, you know, him coming up and trying an overtaking manoeuvre um, into a corner, because there are always two sides to, to that story when, when the arguments happen in the paddock afterwards. But what about the time when he was coming down the straight at, was it Estoril? Wheel-to-wheel uh, -wheel with Prost, going down the straight at 190 miles an hour, and just almost, it seemed, for the hell of it, he just started to squeeze Prost towards the pit wall. Yes, um, I think that was partly to do with whether or not they had an arrangement um, about whether the chap who had pole position, if they were on the front row together, um, the pole position man, if he got away cleanly, would have precedence in the early laps and, and the, the other one, whichever it was, wouldn't attack him. Um, and Prost had come up behind Senna and alongside him uh, out of the last corner, if I remember rightly, at Estoril, drawn alongside him. And Senna thought he had no right to be there because you know, they had an agreement. So he squeezed him, as you say, at 180 miles an hour, a kind of breathtakingly dangerous thing. It's a thing that Schumacher did to um, Barrichello, I think, in his first year back with Mercedes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's blood-curdling when you, when you see that. There is, there's, there's a, a quote that you, you quote Senna um, in your book as saying, and there was some discussion about whether he should have behaved as he did or whether he was unreasonable to another driver, and he said, but I am Senna. Mm. Yes, I am Senna. Um, and I think he really believed that, and he believed that he had special powers in a racing car, and um, that there was a kind of entitlement um, to win. And he did, you know, he did have fantastic skill, there's no question. Um, and he believed that it was up to a racing driver, Formula One driver, if he wanted to be world champion, to organize the odds in his favor. As racing drivers have done through the generations, you know, mm. that's how Fangio mm. operated. You know, he was a, a five times world champion with four different teams. And he did it by moving from one team to another and making sure that he had the right car in any given season. And Senna, you know, when he was desperately trying to get into the Williams team in nine, at the end of 93, um, he was doing the same thing. He believed he, you know, he was trying to maneuver Prost out and get himself in because he believed he had an entitlement to be there. And it was a similar thing on the track. Um, you know, I think he thought if a chap was getting in his way, he just shouldn't be there. Um, so he had the right to, to drive through him. This is all neg rather negative sounding in a way. And I wouldn't like it just to be about that. I think it's an important facet of his career because he brought into motor race, into Formula One, into Grand Prix racing, a kind of behavior that we see a lot now. We saw it, Michael Schumacher um, copied it to some extent. Max Verstappen, when he came in, behaved in, a, in, in the way that a young Senna would have done, mm. believing that he had an absolute entitlement to win and nobody, especially not some older guy, mm. had a right to stand in his way.
Well, leaving aside then for the, for the moment the negative, because obviously in your book there's an enormous amount of positive about Senna, um, you talk a lot about a particular race which, because it happened in the UK, some of the people in this room might well have been there, which was that race in the wet at Donington, uh, which I think was one of the supreme uh, demonstrations of how good Senna was in the wet. Just describe that race to us. Yes. Um, was anybody at that race? The, the, yeah, we've got yeah. some hands anybody going up. At the, the European Grand Prix of 1993 at Donington. Mm. Um, it was uh, put into the calendar pretty late on. Tom Wheatcroft had been desperate to get um, Grand Prix cars back to Donington Park, where they'd raced before the war, the Mercedes and Auto Unions, and Tom Wheatcroft, who bought the circuit and renovated it, had seen those races and had a dream of doing it. So um, uh, I think he slipped Bernie five million quid and got his chance, <laughs> uh, basically. Um, and, and unfortunately, it poured with rain. It was freezing cold. Well, it was Easter Sunday. It yeah. was. It was not a very good. You know, early April, not a very good time to have a, uh, a Formula One race in. And Tom lost the most enormous amount of money. He did because. But he I, said when he was on the podium wearing his top hat, he said it were worth every bloody quid. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And he ne never really needed to have another one there. Just to have it once, yeah. I think, was, was the thing. Um, it was a filthy day. Um, it was the season when Prost had come back from his year's sabbatical and had joined Williams along with Damon Hill, who was there as the number two. And Williams once again had a virtually unbeatable car. Um, it had all the, you know, all the bells and whistles, um, and um, an active ride and all sorts of things, traction control, um, and other people had some of those bells and whistles too. But Williams had developed it to a very, very high degree, um, and I, if I remember rightly, Prost and Hill were on the front row um, after qualifying. Race day was a really filthy, horrible day, drooped, heavy, heavy drizzle. Um, I remember, I think King Hussein of Jordan and Princess Di were shown around the paddock in the morning by Jackie Stewart, who, who else? else? Um, <laughs> and they all tried to pretend, you know, this was Monaco, <laughs> Monaco in the East Midlands. But really, it wasn't. Um, but well, Senna was fourth on the grid. Um, Behind, um, behind Prost, Damon, Schumacher. And he dropped fifth quite quickly because, if I remember rightly, Carl Wendlinger got past him yeah. after the start. But then, over the course of the remainder of that first lap, he went past all of them with a variety of staggering moves. I think he went past Wendlinger by going onto the wet bit of the track. Um, and uh, I remember Prost was the last one he took, and you could just see Prost saw the yellow helmet probably in the gloom behind and just thought, there is no point in resisting this. We'll have to let him by. Um, and uh, Senna handled the conditions, handled the strategy brilliantly, um, and came home the winner. Prost made seven pit stops for a variety of reasons. I think once to empty the ashtray or the, you know, <laughs> or the sunroof had got stuck or something. Um, but he made, 
the press conference, I don't know if you remember that press conference, it was very memorable because um, uh, Prost spent about 10 minutes explaining all the things that had gone wrong, including some of the things I just mentioned. And um, then Senna leaned over to the, sitting next to him, leaned over to the microphone and said, um, would you like to swap cars with me? <laughs> and the place <laughs> fell apart because, of course, Senna's great desire was to get into the Williams team. Yeah, and yeah. Prost had blocked him. And, and we were in a season where Williams was clearly the better car. Yes, yeah, yeah. very, very, very clearly. Um, but, you know, Senna had made the car do things that uh, it, it shouldn't have done, as he did again during that season. And he was always wonderfully quick at Monaco. Um, but there was that famous year, Senna didn't make many mistakes, but being on the edge as much as he was, there were occasional mistakes. And I think you said in the book, Richard, that he, he unlike Prost, unlike many drivers who were more or less perhaps passionate, when he was in a comfortable lead, he didn't ease up or go more gently preserve the car, take no risks, make sure he got to the checkered flag first. He just stayed on the limit all the time, even though he had such a huge lead that he was completely unchallenged. And we then had that embarrassing accident at Monaco when he was comfortably in the lead late in the race and he incomprehensibly suddenly crashed. I think the reason for him maintaining full pace, even when he was in the lead of a race. It's a question of rhythm. Um, rhythm is a lot to do with driving a racing car, as I understand it, and from my limited experience. Um, at that level, it's very, very important, um, because corners come up very quickly. You have to have a very clear picture of them in your head. You have to be able to see two and three corners ahead, or think two and three cor cor corners ahead. Um, and I suspect that may have had something to do with what happened at Monaco. That year, that was 88, when he just joined McLaren and he was um, trying to impose himself on Prost, um, who'd been with the team for some years and very successful. And Senna was joining him as an equal and knew he would have a fight on his hands. And he asked John Watson, I think, um, for advice about how to deal with Prost. And, and Watson said, well, just watch Prost. You'll see he has a particular way of doing things in, inside the team. And, you know, just watch what he does and do that, you know, kind of follow, because Prost has been very successful. And um, Senna went away and thought about that and thought, mm -mm, sod that, I'm not doing that at all. I'm going to sort of do the opposite of that. I'm going to take the team on on my terms and do what I think is right and get them to follow me. So it was a confrontational approach and it worked extremely well. Um, I think he did win the first four races mm. of, of that season. Mm. Um, but the Monaco accident. The Monaco was. accident, yeah, the Monaco, well, he remember he'd out-qualified Prost and everybody uh, for that race by two seconds, I think. I mean, it was just supernatural. And, of course, it was Prost in second place, and he was trying to humiliate him yes. by beating him by the largest possible margin. Yes. Um, and he was, you know, pulling out a more lead than he needed, for sure. Um, but I think trying to maintain his rhythm 
at such a high level, so close to the edge, he made a tiny mistake. You know, when you come down the hill at Monaco, you go around the, what used to be the station hairpin, yeah. um, as I think of it, um, and then down to the harbour, down to the harbour front to Portier, a sharp right-hander, 90 degree probably right-hander, before you go into the tunnel. And he clipped the apex, the barrier on the apex of, of the turn, and it threw him across uh, and into the barrier on the other side, which pushed the front, uh, front left-hand suspension back, end of race. Um, but it must have been the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest error to clip that, that barrier. Um, but of course, those are the margins. And he got close, uh, at Monaco, those are the margins. Um, and he made those margins finer than anybody else did. Um, I don't think personally that he lost concentration, um, which is what a lot of people said afterwards. Um, you don't imagine Senna losing. It's him. hard to imagine that. Yeah. I just think he shaved the margin too. And remind us what he did after he climbed out of the car. He jumped out of the car, um, and rather than making his way back to the pits or the, pan well, the pits at Monaco, um, I remember him pulling out his earplugs, throwing them away after he'd taken his helmet off, and he stalked back um, to his apartment in Monaco, uh, if I remember rightly and um, spent the rest of the afternoon there and didn't emerge until much later in the day and nobody could get hold of him. You know, his, um, there weren't mobiles then, so yeah, yeah. he did the equivalent of switching his mobile off um, and didn't answer the phone in the apartment. And which, then which makes one feel that actually, um, because so much a part of what Senna was was this huge, arrogant self-confidence and the indication, I remember thinking at the time, he'd sort of strode off and disappeared. His team couldn't talk to him. Certainly the journalists couldn't talk to him. Nobody could talk to him. And I wonder if his, actually his self-confidence, his feeling of total superiority, had briefly been shaken. I wonder. Um, I, <laughs> I would tend to doubt it. Uh, I think he was furious that he'd lost a race, right, that he had right. sewn up. But it's possible. But did he accept that it was his fault? I think he was... It, it, yes, he did, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Um, but it was an extraordinary weekend because that qualifying lap that he did, the far, he, he came straight back into the pits, got out of the car, and felt shaken by what he'd done. Um, he talked very eloquently about it afterwards um, and said he'd gone into what we would call a zone, I guess. A zone that he'd never visited before. Um, a kind of elevated state of consciousness or execution um, where he didn't really need to think about what he was doing. And when I read that, that interested me very much. And that's to do with my interest in music and especially in jazz musicians who improvise. Jazz musicians often say that you practice your technique from childhood, your instrumental technique, every day for hours and hours to get it as good as it could possibly be in order to forget it when you're actually playing, when you're improvising. And that's a very important thing. And it's quite rare. It's difficult. You know, it's a very difficult state to achieve. Most never get there. Um, well, you say in the book that um, you, you make that comparison in the book and you say that um, this thing of Senna feeling that 
he was on a different plane, so he didn't have to think about it. He did this fastest lap that Edinburgh had ever done around Monaco. Um, and it's like a jazz musician who kind of loses um, focus on what he's doing. It's almost as though somebody else is playing the instrument. Yes, yes. and the, the, the execution becomes somehow automatic, and it's just a kind of pure perception of what you're doing, yeah. a pure sensitivity to what you're yeah. doing. So that seemed, you know, that seemed legitimate to me. It didn't seem fanciful. Yeah. Um, I thought, you know, there, there was a, a reason for that huge gap in qualifying. Um, with everybody else just going around normally, doing what they normally do. And Senna actually had just gone somewhere else and found something else. Let's talk about that wonderful period when Senna and Prost were in the same team. Because not only were they, at the time, the two best drivers in Formula One in the same team, but what's always fascinated me is that their approach was so different you know, Prost, always calm, good with the team. The professor driving as smoothly and as accurately, looking almost slow when he was at its fa his fastest. And then the kind of controlled aggression of Senna. It was a completely different approach, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. I mean, there is a man sitting here who's, who spent several seasons reading their telemetry, so he would know very clearly what the differences were. He, he's referring to Steve Nichols, who's here in the front row, indeed, and who was engineering Ayrton Senna's car uh, while Senna and Prost were in the same team. And designed the MP44, the 1988 car. Um, so he would know, but from the... From the outside, clearly they, they were very different characters and that those characters seemed to come out in the way they drove. That Prost was the professor, as you say, he was you know, um, very analytical, very calm. Um, you know, there's the old thing of the best way to win a race is at the slowest possible speed and that seemed to be Prost. Whereas with Senna, you could see the emotion in his driving which I think was why he connected with, with you know, so many people just watching on television or in the grandstands. And that's a very important thing in sport. You want, to, you want to see that emotion come through, whatever, whether it's a tennis player or a footballer or whatever. You, you, you really, as a spectator, maybe not as an engineer, but as a spectator, that's what you want to see. And you could always see that with Senna, as you could with Gilles Villeneuve, for instance. Mm. Um, I, you know, it's a bit sort of, are you Beatles or are you Stones, um, <laughs> Prost and Senna. Um, I personally never warmed to Senna. That's not important. Uh, to Prost, sorry. <laughs> I never warmed to Prost because of that, that rather kind of dry approach he seemed to have. Um, I liked something a little, you know, a little more mm. uh, expressive mm. in, in, in driving. Uh, but Prost, how can one criticise Prost? You know, four mm. world championships, fantastic driver. Mm. Um, clearly, uh, well, you know, when, when Prost appeared, uh, when he made his first appearance, you know, he, he seemed to be a prodigy on the same level as, as Senna. Or, yeah. you know, and joining Louder at McLaren. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, I know we wanted to talk about the good bits of, of, uh, of Senna, but now, because we're talking about Prost, we have to talk about probably the two most notorious collisions in Formula One history. They both happened between Senna and Prost. Once when Senna and Prost were in different teams, McLaren and Ferrari, 
but most dramatically when they were both with McLaren. Tell us about those. Well, the first time was at the end of the 89 season. Um, Senna had won the championship in 88, their first season together. And they went into the last race at Suzuka. Either of them could win the championship. Um, and I can't remember what lap it was. Um, Steve, do you remember what lap it was? Yep. <laughs> um, uh, Towards the end, right, yep. <laughs> and they came up to the very tight little chicane, neck and neck, and it was just, it was pure headbutting, I think. Mm. And they just kind of both, neither of them took the chicane. They both sort of came to a rather embarrassing halt. Um, and it was interesting. Prost worked out very quickly that this was probably going to mean that he'd won the championship. So he jumped out of the car and went away. Whereas Senna made this fantastic maneuver around the cones and you know, the inside of the chicane and carried on. Um, but the end result was indeed that Prost won. Well, Senna was disqualified, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he was in the end. Of effectively avoiding the chicane. Yep. And then Which bizarrely... seemed pretty unreasonable, actually, because he wanted to carry on racing, yeah. whereas Prost clearly didn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which also says something about their characters, yep, I think. Yep, yeah. yep. One made the better calculation than the other, actually, yeah. in the end. And then, bizarrely, it was at the same circuit, by now Prost, I guess, to escape Senna, had moved from McLaren to Ferrari. And then they collided again. Tell us about that. Well, um, they were, again, um, they were on the front row together for the start of that Japanese Grand Prix at the end of um, 1990. Um, and um, Senna was very upset. He'd got pole position. And he thought it was on one side of the track. I think he thought it was on the outside. And for some reason, it was moved to the inside, uh, which he thought was the disadvantageous place to be, given that it was the dirty side of the track where the start was. And he accused um, Jean-Marie Belestre, the French uh, president of the FIA, the governing body, of being in collusion with Prost, as he'd suspected that Prost, rightly or wrongly, that Prost had had some help from the governing body over preceding seasons. Um, so he was furious um, at being disadvantaged in that way, which he thought was completely unreasonable. So they started, and Prost indeed got away first. And it, it, you probably remember, um, they came to the first corner. Prost possibly left the tiniest, tiniest inkling of a gap. Um, Senna either went for it or went for the back of... Uh, Prost Ferrari, and he didn't really mind which it was, and he went into the back, and they both went off at around 130, I think, wasn't yeah. it? And sort of ripped across the... And, and as a result, Senna won the championship. Yes, and as a result, Senna won the championship. So that was his revenge, no doubt. And of course, he, he pretended that he hadn't meant to do it, uh, and then a couple of years later gave, gave an interview in which he said... I, I did do it. it. That's right, yes. Yeah. Um, teammates... Uh, obviously, as is so famous, um, and as we've heard, Senna and Prost were not happy teammates. Um, when Senna had 
a teammate that he could more easily dominate, which meant really all his teammates except for Prost. Um, he then seemed to be much more comfortable. Yes, he was, um, at the beginning of his career, when he went from Tolman to Lotus, uh, it looked as though his teammate was going to be Derek Warwick. And he knew Derek Warwick pretty well, and he knew that Warwick was a you know, potential Grand Prix winner. He was, you know, he was a, a very good driver indeed. So he made sure that Warwick didn't get the seat. Mm. And uh, uh, actually, that was his second second season. His first season with with De Angelis, and when De Angelis moved to Brabham, that's right. Yeah. Um, he was going to have a new teammate, and it was going to be Warwick, and then it wasn't because Senna objected. And I think they got Johnny Dumfries. They did, yes. Um, who was a very good driver, but the, the Marcus not Butte. really a potential winner. Probably not. No. Yeah. Um, and certainly would know his place anyway. Um, so that was an example of him his manipulating things, you know, to his yeah. mind, no doubt about that. But I, I was always fascinated by the period when he was teammates with Gerhard Berger because Berger was an extremely rapid driver, Grand Prix winner. Um, but uh, somehow, Senna having established that he was the team leader and the better driver. You never saw Senna making jokes. Senna never seemed to crack a smile, certainly not at the, at the circuit. But somehow Berger, with his practical jokes, his throwing briefcases out of the uh, helicopter, helicopters. Yeah. Uh, I mean, another great thing Berger would do is steal your passport and paste in where your face was in the picture. He'd paste in a picture of the chimpanzee. And if you didn't know, when you arrived at the border, you know, the, the customs official would be somewhat bemused. But that, that was actually an extraordinary friendship, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, it was. It was a genuine friendship. But I think it was, I think it was based on Berger knowing his place. Yes. Um, even though, you know, they were not a million miles apart in terms of talent. I think Berger accepted that if he were going to be in a team with Senna, then he would have mm. to. Mm. Um, take it basically and of course Senna repaid him by giving him a victory uh, at the end of their season but he did and it he in a slightly insulting way didn't you he? know when when Fangio allowed Moss or didn't to win the British Grand Prix in 1955 when they were together at Mercedes Fangio never let it be known never showed by any gesture in the race or afterwards that he'd let it happen Moss always suspected that he had. But Fangio respected Moss, this young teammate, this young number two, to give him a victory in his um, race without un undermining the, the integrity of that victory. And what Senna did uh, with Berger was wanting very nicely to give him a win. At the or end perhaps of the Ron had said to him that this should happen. I don't know. Mm, okay, but anyway, what happened? What he did was pull over after the last corner and just sort of you know, make, make it very it obvious that he slowed down and let him go by to, yeah. to win the race. A bit like what Ferrari got up to in later years with Schumacher and uh, yes. Barrichello. But that was kind of enforced, it wasn't. Uh, yes. And it was for different, very different motives. Yes, yeah. I know Senna said, uh, again, a fascinating line in your book, that he didn't, uh, I don't know if he said this, but you have divined this, that he didn't like to make friendships within the team, but that least of all should you be friendly with your own teammate. 
because that might weaken your own strength of superiority. He would prefer to remain aloof uh, than actually get too friendly, too relaxed with his, with his teammate. I, I, I suspect that that may have softened a little mm. um, as he got into his 30s. Um, you know, maybe it did with, with Berger. Um, I think Damon Hill, who was definitely his junior, but I think found him, you know, a, a, a pleasant teammate. Mm. I don't think, you know, there was any difficulty there. But then, you know, Senna would have known that he was no a driver than yeah. Damon, that there was no yeah. threat um, yeah. at that, certainly at that stage, with all mm. due respect mm. to Damon. One of the ways in which he really was different, um, you tell the story of how um, if you were able to penetrate the first-class cabin at the front of the plane, Senna would be there on a long-haul flight going to a Grand Prix on the other side of the, of, of the globe, and he'd have his nose deep in the Bible. Mm. He would read the Bible on a long flight. Mm. Um, and he talked about God quite a lot. What do you make of all of that? Um, Brazil is uh, a very religious country. Um, he was brought up as quite a devout Catholic, certainly <coughs> practicing Catholic. Um, he took it seriously. Uh, he went into churches sometimes, but he always said he liked going into churches when they were empty. It's an interesting facet of his character that he didn't want particularly to be in a church while a formal service was taking place as part of a congregation. But he liked going into a church and just sitting there and thinking. And I suppose we would say today, getting in touch with his own spirituality or whatever. You know, he certainly believed in a God. <coughs> Do you remember at the end of the Japanese Grand Prix in 88, I think? Yes. You know, um, he said, you know, it was a great victory for him. And he said he came round the last corner and was you know, zooming up to the chequered flag and he saw the face of God as he came out of the last corner. Well, okay. I, I, um, maybe, I, maybe he did. I, I rather like the fact that he only wanted to be in a church on his own uh, rather than with a congregation of ordinary people because I mean, that was part of his feeling of superiority. You know, he thought that if he was going to talk to God, he was going to do it on his own almost as an equal. And that God would want him to himself, yes. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> Extraordinary. Yeah. Um, also, I suppose, the religious thing, if you like, added to his armour of self-belief. I mean, he, this huge self-belief, mm. this feeling that he had a divine right to win every race. Um, and in, in a way, he, he must have used that religion as a sort of... Um, tool to strengthen that? Yes. Um, uh, I think a lot of people found, a lot of people, particularly in the British media, found his expression of his spiritual beliefs um, distasteful. You know, we're quite a secular country, unlike mm. Brazil. Um, we, nowadays, we tend to react against that, particularly when it comes from somebody who's famous in another field. You know, it's okay for the Archbishop of Canterbury to say that. Yeah. You know, but yeah. would you want 
David Beckham to say it, possibly not, you know. Yeah. Um, so when people do that, and, and particularly when they appear to be advancing it as an example of how they have some kind of superior cast of mind or a hotline to God, then I think, I think that put a lot of people off. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, you always have to remember with somebody like Senna, he's expressing himself in his second language. He, or, you know, maybe not even his second one, but not his first language. Mm. And, you know, people tend not to make allowances for that, that sometimes, you know, he was a very eloquent man, no doubt about mm. that. He was mm. eloquent in English too. But sometimes nuances don't quite come through. I always used to think when I heard him speaking in press conferences um, and how eloquent and expressive he was, when he first arrived in this country to start driving in Formula Ford, he didn't speak English at all. And it was, to me, a measure of... I mean, I'm sure the reason why he learnt English so quickly and so well was all part of his determination, his focus to be a good, uh, the best racing driver. And English is the lingua franca of motor racing. So it was part of his job to become very clear, whether it's talking to his team or talking to the outside world. Um, he needed to do it well, and, and that's what happened. I wanted to talk about one equally interesting in a very different way, another character who came up against Senna and who had his own prickly armour of self-belief <laughs> and was completely impervious, but the only person I think who was completely impervious to Senna's psychological weapon, and that was Nigel Ansell. Yep. <laughs> Nigel is not a man um, that you would ask about spiritual matters. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you wanted a thump. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, I mean, that was such a great time for, dry, for a group of drivers at the top who all had completely different characters. Um, you know, you had Nelson Piquet from Rio, who was a certain type of Brazilian. You had Senna from Sao Paulo, who was a completely different type of Brazilian. You had Prost, again, who was different, and you had Mansell. Very, very widespread of mm. behaviours, I think we would say. <laughs> Um, and, of course, Mansell in the Senna years, in, in the years that Senna... You know, Senna came in and it was very clear he was the anointed one. You know, he was going to be a multiple world champion. There was never any doubt about that from, you know, the moment anybody saw him. Mansell had a very, very different path to the top. He had to fight for everything and he had to fight scepticism uh, inside and outside the paddock. He had to fight people who disliked him quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, One of the reasons why Williams were quite happy to see the back of him was yeah. because Patrick Head found him so impossible to deal with. Yes, um, yes, and would never make any bones about that. No, quite, no, that's right. About it. I mean, and it, I'm afraid, you know, there's quite a lot of snobbery involved in that. Um, you know, Nigel was a kind of horny-handed son of the West Midlands and, mm. you know, didn't bother sprucing up his accent or his, his manner in any way. But he was a fantastic driver. Of course. Know. Anybody who thinks Nigel Mansell wasn't you know, worth his world championship is wrong. You know, he, was, he was a guy who got into a car and just wanted to get past the guy in front of him. 
And what else do you want from a racing driver? Yes. Uh, so when he came up against Senna, what happened? Um, some pretty bad things happened, if I remember rightly. I mean, they, had, they had two major altercations. Australia? Spa. Yeah. There was one at Spa in 87, I think, mm. um, when Senna was still at Lotus. Um, and that was when um, Mansell marched into the garage, into Senna's garage, and grabbed him warmly round the throat. <laughs> and uh, Senna said afterwards, when a man comes to you afterwards and grabs you round the throat, he said, you know he hasn't come to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he hadn't. And then, yeah, they had another, um, another coming together. Was that in... Was that? There, there was something in Australia, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, <coughs> and I think it was Adelaide. Um, when Senna was... One of them brake-tested the other. That's right. Um, Senna, brake um, Senna brake tested Did or didn't brake-test yes. Um I mean, I think uh, when you saw it on television, and I think Jackie Stewart was watching it on television, probably commentating for... Uh, American television and said that it was absolutely clear that um, uh, Senna had deliberately driven into the back of Mansell. That's or if right. I go to the other yeah. way around, no. that way around. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, in fact, if you look very clearly and go frame by frame, it does look as though um, Mansell used that old technique of Formula 3 drivers where if you, and, and in fact you said rather splendidly in your book, it's also a technique that is done um, on the M4 by a couple of chaps who may be in company cars and they get angry with each other and the one in front, the fast lane suddenly hits the brakes to get the guy behind a bit scared. It's one thing to do it on the M4 at 80 miles an hour, it's quite something else to do it on the track. I'd rather they kept it to racetracks myself and didn't do it on the other one. But it went back to the incident at, at Monaco, the, the, or the race at Monaco the preceding year, when Mansell had been on eight, went Senna won, and Mansell had been behind him, clearly quicker um, for the whole of the last part of the race, and hadn't been able to get by because Senna had been very adroitly filling the track, which is possible to mm. do at Monaco, of course. Um, and there was a theory that Mansell might have been paying him back for that, yes. showing him what was what. I mean, they both went off. But, it was, yeah. but um, do you remember Davy Jones, the, uh, the American. American driver, yeah. who'd raced against um, Senna? In Formula 3. In Formula 3. Uh, and it was a thoughtful chap. And I talked to him about that incident. And he said he thought it might have been, you know, maybe Mansell braked a little bit earlier, maybe, you know, not trying to prove anything or do anything. But he said he, his impression was that, as I was saying earlier, Senna always thought two or three corners ahead. He always thought well ahead of where he was on the track. And he may have, in his head, you know, have been on, in a sense, on autopilot in that moment. Yes. And Mansell did something, you know, very close to him that he hadn't been expecting and couldn't do anything about it. Um, on the other hand, I talked to two other guys who'd raced against Senna in, in Formula Ford, Dave Coyne and somebody else, can't remember the other one, and they both were absolutely convinced that Mansell had done it on purpose. Yeah. You say, uh, a lovely point you make, um, identifying that in that, that particular period you had Senna, you had Prost, you had um, Piquet, 
and you had Mansell. And they were all quite different, and they were all, in their different ways, very interesting characters. Mm -hmm. um, now, in modern Formula One, one might say superficially that there aren't any characters anymore. <laughs> um, but presumably what's really going on is that there are still characters, because you don't get into Formula One unless you're a fairly interesting and um, smart cookie. But that in some way, the way Formula One is now sort of disguises all of that. The, the, the character of the man isn't able to come out anymore. No. Well, I think, you know, Lewis, Vettel, uh, Leclerc, um, Verstappen, obviously, um, those in particular, they're really interesting people. Um, unfortunately, you know, they've got halos, they've got helmets that don't give you a clear idea of who they are and you can't see them anyway. Um, the cars are extraordinary now. They're extraordinary pieces of engineering, but they're not designed to allow the spectator the spectator to see what the driver is doing in the way that you could when Fangio was in a four-wheel drift or, you know, even Schumacher, you know, sort of, you know, twitching a car around a, around a corner. They're just such big lumps of engineering and high technology, and the driver is so hidden. You know, it's partly because of Senna's accident, you know, where the cockpit sides were raised, and then um, after Gilles Bianchi's accident, you know, the... <coughs> Halo was came in, what came in. Is it not also because um, you you can never analyse what in a victory how much of it is due to the car, how much of it is due to the driver? Um, if you're an old traditionalist like me who learnt to love motor racing in the fifties, you would say that we watched Sterling Moss in a car that was clearly inferior, overcoming that inferiority and and beating potentially much quicker cars and people who don't like modern Formula One say that now the car has too much to do with the victory and the driver doesn't have enough. So if you put Lewis Hamilton in one of the cars further down the grid, he, clearly he is a supremely talented driver, but he wouldn't be able to show that if he were in one of the lesser cars. Do you, do you agree with that? some extent but not entirely and I you know I'm from the same generation generation as you I like I like the same things I like to see those you know wonderful moments of flair and and you know, showing showing themselves but I, I do think when you you know uh, Max Verstappen that wonderful race at, at, at Interlagos a couple of years ago in the pouring rain when he took completely different lines from everybody else um, and went through the field. I mean, it was just staggering to watch. It was a, a display of, you know, original thinking and inventiveness. And then when Fettel went through the field last Sunday, you know, started 20th, finished second. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, there's all the complex strategy, the ridiculous tyre regulations and the ridiculous tyres that they have. I mean, how can you tell a Formula One team that they have to use two different kinds of tyre during the course of a race. That's just yeah. daft, you know, it's completely stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so all those things militate against the expression of the driver's character, I think. But I do actually think that the characters are there. I just, mm. And they're sometimes easier to appreciate in retrospect or 
at yeah. least when they get older or they're closer to... I think it's easier to appreciate Lewis Hamilton now yeah. for many people than it was 10 yes. years ago. Yes, that's probably right. Um, you know. It's also, of course, looking back, one of the great things about a retired racing driver is that he doesn't mind telling the truth. Yeah. You know, you talk to a, race, a current racing driver in, in the paddock um, and he's very careful about what he tells you for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. But you sit down with him 20 years later um, and you can really get some interesting stories which you couldn't get at the time. Well, you're the past master of doing that. <laughs> I, going back to the, um, the characters, there's another conflict which always interested me, which has to do with all sorts of things, including, um, well, not class. I, I agree with you that Nigel Mansell um, was at a time when um, motor racing was still kind of upper middle class. Formula One was still upper middle class, and, um, and Nigel Mansell clearly wasn't. But in Brazil, as you mentioned, people who come from Rio are completely different from people who come from Sao Paulo. And Nelson Piquet from Rio, um, never minded what he said about people. And some of the things that Piquet said in public press conferences uh, about Senna were absolutely hilarious. Well, they were pretty unforgivable if he was Senna, I think. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I think now, 25, 30 years later, if you say somebody's gay, it probably doesn't matter so much, but I think probably 30 years ago it did. And mm. you know, PK just tried to insult him, rile him by insulting him, said that. Mm. But he said lots of things, you know, he said Mansell couldn't drive and had a stupid, ugly wife. You know, well. <laughs> yes. Mind um, you, um, story I rather fondly remember, um, James Hunt, when he, well, when he was a race, when he was a driver, but also particularly when he was a, a television commentator, always uh, wore his heart on his sleeve. He hated Riccardo Patrese, uh, and that went back to a, um, well, it actually went back, I think, to Ronnie Peterson's death, mm -hmm. uh, which, for which he, uh, Hunt blamed. always blamed Patrese. Um, and so on television, he would always be um, embarrassingly anti-Patrese. But he had his loves and his hates. And I remember sitting in the Marlborough motorhome with James Hunt, and we were talking about things in general. And James, in an expansive mood, he said, oh, what you've got to remember, Simon, is that uh, it's not possible to be a Formula One world champion unless you're reasonably intelligent. And at that moment, Nelson Piquet walked past the window and he said, mind you, there are exceptions to every rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And your man, question was? <laughs> the, the one man you haven't men we haven't mentioned yet, um, and he's fascinating in this, con in this Senna context, because he was the later generation. He was the young genius coming up to threaten Senna, uh, and that was Michael Schumacher. And one did get the impression, um, and I mean, even in that last tragic race, when Senna had just joined Williams, when it was absolutely clear that that season's Williams was a very difficult car to drive. And Schumacher, this young new man from Germany in the Benetton, uh, was starting 
to, I don't know if he was starting to worry Senna, but certainly there was some pressure there, which Senna hadn't had before. And who knows whether the Imola accident... He hadn't had it from a younger man before, I think is probably yes. the key. Yes. Um, I think he, he sensed that, you know, his, the gener his generation, the guys who'd been around a year or two longer, were retiring, going away, PK, Mansell, Prost. But it's the first time he'd really been made to feel his age, I think, actually, mm. that there was a new, you know, there might be a new younger challenger. If there hadn't been that tragic accident, it would have been absolutely fascinating to see how that played out, because, as we know, Senna was already, he had substantial business interests in Brazil. He already had an eye to how he was going to spend his life once he'd left motor racing. But I don't think he would have liked to have left motor racing having been beaten by, by Schumacher. He would have wanted to beat Schumacher and become world champion once more before he left. I think he might have stayed a bit longer than that. Mm. Um, you know, he, he said in a rather sentimental way that he you know, felt his career wouldn't be complete unless he drove for Ferrari. Um, and if Ferrari had been able to present him with a, a good car after he'd won one or two titles with Williams, then, as he certainly would have done, mm. um, then he might have gone on and, and driven for Ferrari for a, for a year or two. I, I, I've always thought that, that was a distinct possibility, not just, a, not just him saying something you know, romantic. And we do know with hindsight that that year um, the Benetton was bent. It was a cheating car. Um, you won't get them to admit that. Even well, no, but, but I, I, yeah, I, uh, I, I think we that do. that's accepted. We do. And I wonder how, I mean, if that had emerged during the season, as I'm sure it would have done, I wonder how Senna would have dealt with that. It would have made him very, very angry. It would, but, um, well, we should go back maybe a little bit, that he'd, at the end of 93, he'd managed to get himself a seat in Williams, which is what he'd wanted for a couple of years, while Manson and Prost were winning their, their titles. But unfortunately, he got, into the, he got into the Williams team at a time when the regulations had been changed and all the bells and whistles had to go. Um, active ride and traction control and automatic gear changes. They'd all, all the driver aids um, had to be stripped out of the cars. So the cars basically you know, needed a, a, a redesign. And the car which Adrian Newey designed for Williams for 94 was anything but perfect at the start of the season. Um, I remember at Interlagos, the first race of the season, uh, he was leading, then Schumacher made a, a, a much quicker pit stop, which again might have been the result of them having removed a filter from the fuel rig in order to make their pit stops faster, which got found out halfway through the season. Um, so he was, Senna got back into the race in second place behind Schumacher and obviously pushing. Um, and he made a very uncharacteristic mistake on a very innocuous corner. Um, halfway around the lap, Interlagos spun off and was out of the race. But that was because the Williams handling of the, at that point, the handling of that car was very unpredictable. Mm. It did bad things. Mm. And he was very shocked because he'd seen 
the preceding two seasons, how beautifully behaved these super-fast Williams cars had been. Mm. And to his horror, you know, he got one that wasn't like that at all. Mm. Um, and it caused him a lot of mental mm. turmoil, grief, I think. Uh, and then, you know, there was a an accident at the start of the second race at Aida in Japan. Uh, he, had, he retired, you know, first or second lap, first lap. Mm. Um, and he spent the rest of that race standing by the edge of the track, listening to Schumacher's Benetton go by. Schumacher had won the first race. He, was go he won the second race too. And Senna was listening and came back to the pits and told the team that he thought he'd heard something suspicious. In other words, the evidence of traction, traction control, control, which yeah. had been banned, um, and which you can indeed, you know, in its various iterations, you can mm. generally hear acoustically. Um, but the, you have to remember, too, that the, by the time they got to Imola, and we ought, no doubt we'll, you'll, you'll want to talk about the accident, but the car was improving. Mm. He stuck it on pole. Mm. Um, you know, it was, it was quick now. Mm. Um, and remember also, to jump forward and after the accident, that over the course of that season, Schumacher only beat Hill by a single point yes. at the end of the last race of the season. So, you know, the car had certainly improved, mm. you know, out of all recognition to mm. how it had started the season. And if Senna had survived, yeah. how many races would he have, you know, how, how far ahead of Schumacher would he yeah. have been at the end of the season? We're, we're running late on time, although it seems that we've been talking for 10 minutes. Um, we do need quickly to talk about Imola. What mm. thing, I mean, the, the, the actual accident has been rehearsed over and over again in endless detail. Mm. I'd just like to look at one thing um, about Imola, which has always intrigued me. Uh, Sid Watkins, the Formula One doctor, who I knew well, uh, told me that on the Sunday morning of the race, um, you know, you'd had that enormous accident for, ba for Barrichello, which fortunately he'd survived on the Friday. You'd had the death of Roland Ratzenberger on the Saturday. And it's a long time since anybody had died in a Formula One car. Twelve years, I think. Yeah. And, and that really shocked Senna. And it really upset him. Uh, you tell the story that that Saturday evening, he found his girlfriend in Portugal in tears. She was staying in his villa. Um, this is Adrian. Um, his last girlfriend, with whom he'd spent a year, 405 days, I think she remembered. They'd met at Interlagos the year before. Um, and she said that he'd rung her on the night before the race in, in some anguish and saying that he didn't want to race. And then later, an hour or so later, maybe two, he'd rung back and said, I feel okay now, I feel better. Well, then, according to Sid Watkins, this is the story he told me, and he and Senna were very close. They had a most unusual friendship, um, I think because Senna had huge respect for, for Prof Watkins, um, and, and Prof liked it because he was a fascinating, mysterious, intriguing character. And on the Sunday morning, uh, Prof said that Senna came to see him and said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like it anymore, it's, it's threatening me. 
and obviously Ratzenberger's death had had something to do with that. And Sid said, for God's sake, Ayrton, if that's how you feel, you must stop now. Come to Scotland and let's go fishing. Because Seda had gone and stayed with Sid up in Scotland and they'd done some fishing. He said, give up all this motor racing now. If that's how you feel, you've got to stop and come to Scotland and we'll go fishing. And Ayrton said, I can't. Contracts, money, commitments. I can't just walk away now. Maybe we can talk again at the end of the season. But I'm now embroiled in this. I'm sort of ensnared in it. And I've got to keep racing. And what fascinated me about that was that you're always aware of racing drivers' commitment, of their absolute single-minded determination to win. And when that goes, then they retire. And the fact that Senna had that at that stage is extraordinary to me. Yeah. Um, he was always very affected by other people's serious accidents. Do you remember the famous story when Martin Donnelly had his horrible yes. crash at Estoril? After it was all over and things had been cleared away, Senna, and the session was long over, Senna made his way to the site of Donnelly's crash and just stood there for 20 minutes thinking. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. Barry, we know Barrichello's crash obviously affected him greatly. Um, because because of, they were both resilient. They were compatriots and mm. Barrichello was, you know, worshipped him as a you know, young guy. Mm. Um, and then with Ratzenberger's crash, all that got on top of him. And there, there is said to have been some there were problems within the family, perhaps. Um, family didn't like his girlfriend. Um, I think they didn't think she was good enough for him. She was kind of ordinary person. Um, seemed to me, what I could see, that they were very happy. Um, but I don't know if you remember at the funeral. Um, I remember I, I went to the funeral and I remember it very clearly. Uh, the open air internment, internment. Uh, internment. Um, the family made their way in cars, people carriers, to the gravesite. And I remember Adrian going to get in the family people carrier and being told, no, you go in the one behind. And Ayrton's sister motioned to a woman called Jusha Menegel, who was a singer who'd been Ayrton's girlfriend before Adrian for a couple of years, a very famous singer in Brazil. You come, and it was as if Jusha was the official widow. And I think there were tensions in the family. Because he and Adrian were together uninterruptedly, I think, for almost two years. No, just over a year. Just yeah. over a year. Yeah, okay. they were. Um, and I, I, you know, this was obviously something that was not going to be spoken about by the family afterwards. Yeah. Um, but I. I there's an element of that there. So I think perhaps there was a bit of disturbance in his yeah. life off the track as well that might have affected we're, his... We're running short of time, and I do want to ask if there are any questions from the audience, but the, the final thing um, I must ask you is uh, about the funeral. If you have Richard's book, The Death of Ayrton Senna, or if you're able to get hold of a copy, even if you don't read any of it except the first 20 pages which is Richard's description. I think you were sent by the Independent on Sunday to I was, cover yeah, yeah. 
yeah. uh, the funeral. Yeah. But it is the most extraordinary, evocative description of how the whole of Brazil, a large country with a population of whatever, the whole of, the, of Brazil had been kind of galvanized by, by this event. And the military fly pasts and the thousands of people weeping in the street. Extraordinary. And people queuing for women and school children queuing for seven hours to get into the building where the where the body was mm. on display before the funeral. Um, I was very lucky. I, I was my sports editor said, "Why don't you go?" The, the, that night he rang me up the night of the accident and said, "Why don't you go to the funeral? Get on a plane to São Paulo." So I did. Um, and I got to Sao Paulo on the Tuesday morning via Lisbon, um, half an hour ahead of the plane that brought his body back from Paris. Um, so I was able to, I got a taxi and we joined the motorcade that followed the fire engine with the coffin on it uh, several miles from the airport into Sao Paulo to the place where the, the hall where the body was going to lie in state and it was like a scene from Mad Max there was every kind of vehicle you could possibly imagine from you know mopeds with four people on them to giant trucks all chasing down both carriageways of this superhighway from the uh, from Guaralhos airport uh, into Sao Paulo um, an extraordinary all waving flags you know and the th you remember that Senna used to wave used to you know, pull out a Brazilian flag when, for the lap of honour after he'd won a race. Well, he would have it in the cockpit in case he won, yeah. because he was sure he was going to. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, they all did, and that was a kind of, it was a Senna thing, you know, to, yeah. for them all to do that. It was a, a salute to him. Uh, and there were just tens of thousands. Every bridge, every parapet, every roadside was packed with people, posters or kind of, you know, sort of banners. It was amazing. amazing. Um, I mean, I've been to two great funerals in my life, Bob Marley's and Ayrton Senna's, and they both had the same effect. Jamaica is a much smaller place than Brazil, but it, it brought the place out. Everybody came out, just as they, just as they did in Sao Paulo. Um, and because those two people were the embodiment of the country and the better Bob Marley was Jamaica. He was Jamaica. He, you know, he yeah. put Jamaica on the map. And it was interesting that Senna appeared at a time when the Brazilian football team was not, very, not doing very well. Um, he, he pulled the flag out for the first time, I think, after Brazil had got knocked out of was it, the 80, no, 86 World Cup. Um, so, you know, he was, at that point, he was the standard bearer for Brazil, Brazil in the public, you know, in their own... Minds, Extraordinary. Mm. What a man. Um, we've outstayed our welcome a little bit. I'm going to get ticked off by Steve Clark. No, but, you won't at all. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Williams and Simon Taylor. Fascinating. But Steve, um, I hope you're going to... You, you've got a microphone. The mic is I there, think, if you can pass right, it over. Right, we'll give you the microphone. Have we got any questions for Richard Williams? There is bound to be one. Okay, just let me get to you. Um, I have read the Senna First as Boss book several times, and I've seen the film a couple of times, and I used to watch Senna and all his other crew with great enjoyment. 
I noticed in the book, and also in Senna's driving, a couple of years before he died, there seemed to be a mellowing in his driving. Um, I've also read Jackie Stewart's autobiography when he was talking about the work for driver safety. And in the Senna versus Post book, just before Schumacher came on the scene, he seemed to be mellowing that something had to be done about driver safety on the circuits at that time. Although at that point, we hadn't had any deaths for 10 years, eight years at that time. I was wondering, is the mellowing something that you notice? There was a change a little bit to as he matured. Um, and in the book, they actually, Sid Watkins, actually, Prof Watkins actually said, while the race was on, that Senna was heading for a big accident. Um, I read that in the book. It's the only place I've ever read it, so I assume it was in that book. Um, so I was wondering whether there was a change coming through and he was starting to mellow with regarding to driver safety and circuits and how the FIA and you know the whole media thing was affecting how the um, Formula One was organised. What do you feel? Richard? And could that have actually helped him not to have had the accident? Yeah. I think he was certainly becoming more aware of, of safety. Um, you know, there were there was talk of reviving the Grand Prix Drivers Association, wasn't there? Which which had a primary purpose. Um, not like the usual trade union of negotiating drivers' salaries, but of making sure that the cars and the tracks were safer. And really, nobody bothered about the GPDA for years. I mean, mm, it had sort mm. of fallen into mm. disuse. But I think he was, he was in the forefront of, um, of reviving it with, an, you know, with the thought of making things safer. Intimations um, of his own mortality, perhaps. Yes, uh, maybe. Maybe. Another question, maybe, ladies and gentlemen, just sit down. Anybody been a passenger when he was driving? Anybody here? You know, there's a few people here who was a mechanic and things like that. I believe he used to be quite ruthless with the cars he was given. Used to kill them quite often. They're motor cars, ordinary motor cars. I once did a lap of Brands Hatch in the passenger seat of a Ford Transit with James Hunt driving. Um, <laughs> Sideways, all the way around in a transit, but not Senna. No, sorry, <laughs> Steve. You never pleasure of that. Okay. Now this is Howard Moore now, and I'm going to embarrass him by saying he was James Hunt's chief mechanic. I know he hates me saying that, but he was. So uh, Howard, the sorry. Thank you, Steve. Uh, thank you for a very interesting evening, uh, Richard and Simon. Um, I. Don't wish to appear morbid, but I'm sure people here um, wonder about the technicalities of the accident. And I, I'm embarrassed to say I've got your book on my bookshelf, but haven't actually opened it yet. It was on my to-do list in well, the last you few minutes. Oh, yeah. But could you please um, enlighten me, enlighten everybody here? as to what you know about the cause of the yeah. accident? Uh, well, we could spend the next 25 years talking about that, probably. Um, uh, you know that when the race started, the first start, there was an accident um, on the start line um, between JJ Leto Let's and Pedro Lamy. Um, and it left quite a lot of debris on the track, and a few people in the crowd were injured, actually. Um, but the rest of the field had gone screaming around uh, on lap one people cleared up the debris. 
the safety car came out. And the safety car was quite a new thing in Formula One then. And they haven't really worked out the implications of having a safety car, as it was an Opel Cadet, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Driven by a perfectly good driver, but, you know. Um, and he came out in front of the field, everybody slowed down. Um, and they spent, I think, four or five laps behind the safety car, going very slowly, unreasonably slowly. And of course, what happens is that tires cool, tire temperatures then go down, ride heights go down, and ride heights are pretty minimal anyway. Um, Schumacher and Damon Hill, I think, said they'd noticed running behind Senna already that he was taking a very tight line at Tamburello, the very fast left-hander, um, after the start and finish straight. Um, and... Um, sort of 190 mile an hour curve, really. And that there were little corrugations, little ripples in the surface of uh, asphalt on the inside of the apex of that corner. And they'd seen the car bottoming a bit. Um, the race restarted, the safety car limped off. A race restarted, Senna put in a fantastically quick lap straight away. Um, and then came round for the next lap, which I think was the seventh lap. And that's when he went off. And the car seemed to just spear straight off at Tamburello. Um, it went off when he, was, when, when he lost control. Uh, he was doing 190. When he hit the concrete wall, he was doing 130. Um, what caused it? It might have been that the tyre pressures hadn't come back up and that he hit those ripples and that they'd thrown the car off. A popular theory was that there was a break in the steering column, which had been re he had been unhappy one of the things he didn't like about the car was the, the position, his driving position, and that was a lot to do with the positioning of the steering wheel. And he got Patrick Head and Adrian Newey to modify it by cutting into the steering column and welding a new piece in to lengthen it, I think, or raise it. Um, and in the crash, that broke. Now, the question is, did that break and cause the crash, or did it break as a result of the impact with the wall. There was this, the film, there was in-car footage from, you know, neck behind his head, um, which gives a very clear view, actually, um, of what he's doing with the wheel, the steering wheel. Um, and it stops 1.4 seconds before he hits the wall. There's a theory, my theory, um, that piece of film belonged to Bernie Eccleston because all the film did that Bernie got his director to, he didn't want people to see the impact. Well, question of taste. Um, so that 1.4 seconds disappeared. Uh, Bernie said that the director cut away from it at that moment. It's possible. Um, but what you see is Senna not making very much in the way of steering adjustments at that moment. You don't see him. If the steering, I, I would imagine been very lucky I've never had a steering column break but I would imagine if it broke you would you'd go like that wouldn't you you'd think you know, there's nothing there's no resistance there to anything anymore um, I had a little private theory that the power steering may have failed um, and if it had failed it had power steering both Williams cars had power steering and interestingly significantly perhaps they disabled it for the restart of the race in, on Damon Hill's car. That may have been just precautionary, probably was. Um, 
that if the power steering had failed, it might have failed progressively, so he wouldn't have felt a sudden catastrophic change in the sensation of the wheel. Um, all these things were discussed and analyzed minutely during the inquest in Italy, and then again when it came up before the Court of Appeal. Um, and um, no definitive verdict was ever, um, was ever reached. Of course, we know what killed him, that the wheel came back, hit him on the head, two pieces of the suspension penetrated his helmet. Um, the fact that, I mean, the, the, the tire pressure theory, the low tire pressure theory has been much favored, but you mentioned very significantly that the previous lap that Senna did was tremendously quick. Yep. And if he had had yep. soft tires, then he surely wouldn't have been able to achieve that time. Yep. Some good judges, Damon, I think, think he made a mistake. It's possible. Um, it's possibly, you know, quite possible. 190 miles an hour, quite possibly made it. You know, he was Senna, but he was still you know, a human being and a racing driver. Um, I tend to agree with you. I don't think it was the, the tyre pressures, but... Um, you know, we will never know. No, we won't. Right? One more question, ladies and gentlemen, maybe. You, obviously, we're here for 25 anniversary since his death, and you, you talked upon um, the fact that some of the moves he's done of his career, you know, and then the famous Jackie Stewart interview where he said that he counted them many times that he'd been involved with accidents more times that he'd been in his era, no one calculated that many in his lifetime, you know, when, when he was driving. But if you take the con consideration now where the incidents in the Senna, Mansell, Prost era were great, you know, whether you take them out, were good, was good driving. If you look at today with the stewards, um, for instance, the incident with Verstappen in Austria, how that took several hours after the race when we knew nothing had happened, how do you think the fact that we've seen the fact that in that cinematic process it was a good racing, now we can't see that as racing at all now. Nobody can sort of race. Where are you on that sort of situation where, you know, do you agree with that sort of stewarding thing or is it good to have that safety thing now? I think the problem is, as much as anything, it's the circuits. Um, it was very interesting at Hockenheim on Sunday that Charles Leclerc, who is a wonderful young driver, um, complained, went off went across what is actually the drag strip uh, at Hockenheim, which was very, in the rain, was, was very, very slippery indeed, uh, and hit the wall and had to retire. And he said afterwards, they'd no business having, you know, a, a bit of slippery tarmac next to, next to the track. Well, excuse me, you're supposed to drive on the track. You know, <laughs> in, in, the old, in the old days, you know, if you'd done that, you'd have hit a tree or a pillar box or somebody's house, or you'd have gone into a ditch. Um, you know, and I, I, I believe there should be some form of sanction for not staying on the track. And I hate those tracks, like Paul Ricard now, which have just acres and acres and acres of runoff, you know, sometimes painted with stupid stripes and <laughs> multicolored, you know. And or sold to advertisers. Yeah. And they, and they treat it as if it's, you know, as if it's part of the track. And then they give stupid little stewards, you know, five-second penalties for going off. Well, you know, try telling, telling that to Tazio Navalari. Mm. You know, it's just, that's, that, to me, that's what's wrong. That the, the environment is defining the, the racing in a, in, a, in a very bad way. 
And yet, um, Berger wanted the wall at Tamburello to be moved after his accident. Nothing was done. It took Senna's death to move the wall at Tamburello. Well, they so, couldn't move the wall because it was in front of a river. They changed the track. Completely. They changed the track. They got rid right. of the corner. But, I mean, Sterling Moss would always say that the trees and the fences and the houses and the ditches, that was what they were racing against. Yeah. That was part of what they were, yeah. uh, um, what they were tested by. But different times, different yeah. beliefs and behaviours. You know? Absolutely. That would not, you know, to, to take the obvious example, in 2019, you know, if, if somebody went into the crowd in a car and killed 82 people, um, you wouldn't carry on racing for the next <coughs> Indeed. 20 hours as, <coughs> as they yeah. did at Le Mans in 1955. So it, it's, you know, things move and change the whole of time. Course. Of course. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Williams and Simon Taylor. Thank you. Thank you. Richard, brilliant. Richard, before we um, do our world-famous raffle, which everyone is here for, um, can I present you with this piece of 1908 track? Oh. Okay. Um, really? It, yeah, absolutely. We had it freshly made. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, courtesy of the bridge that collapsed in the whatever year it was, we've reclaimed loads of it. That's just a piece of chunk that we've got. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Simon. Very much. All right. John Cobb's John tyre is going over. John Cobb's tyre. John over. Yes. Yeah, he's gone over that piece, yeah. <laughs> About that was right at the top, so uh, look after it. I now, I think well. um, the raffle, if my assistant is with us, if we can draw the first one.